Welcome to our podcast series on the Duty to Consult Doctrine from the Centre for Constitutional Studies located on Treaty 6 Territory in Edmonton, Alberta. This is the final episode in our podcast series. In our previous episode, we heard from Sarah Mainville, who talked about what the duty to consult means from an Anishinaabe legal perspective. Today, Zach G. talks to Megan Conroy about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, its domestic implementation in Canada's Bill C-15, and how they might affect the future of the duty to consult doctrine. Megan Conroy is an Edmonton lawyer with the firm MLT Akins. She assists Indigenous right holders and landowners with issues related to natural resource extraction, land development, flood management infrastructure, and other environmental matters. Additionally, Megan regularly advises Indigenous governments and organizations on public law issues such as governance and elections. Ms. Conroy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this episode is focused on answering the following general questions. What does UNDRIP mean in Canadian law? And what does the effect of passing Bill C-15 have on the duty to consult? Before we dive in, we'd first like to know in general, how does the duty to consult doctrine arise in your practice? Um, so it arises mainly with respect to... Um uh, the development of natural resources, particularly in Alberta, so coal mining, oil sands, um, oil and gas, and also with respect to um, infrastructure projects, proposed infrastructure projects, so um, maybe flood mitigation um, uh, flood management projects, which we're seeing more and more of these projects um, with climate change too. Uh, so that's the context in which it arises. It's it's more um, in the nature of concrete on the ground changes to the land. Um, once in a while, we also see it arising provincially with respect to like land use planning, broader strategic planning, although not as much as we'd like. <laughs> um, and um, the federal government, um, although the case law says they need not consult on legislation before it is proposed, often we'll see uh, the federal government does in fact consult or well, don't want to use capital C consult, but engage uh, with rights holders on, uh, on legislation before introducing it, you know, when, it, when it's a type of legislation that will impact um, treaty and Aboriginal rights. That's a good overview of how, uh, in practice, this duty to consult doctrine, uh, so far we've heard more academic perspectives. So now, when we look at the content of this episode, uh, we'd just like to know, what is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, colloquially known as UNDRIP, and how does it relate to Canadian law? I think that's a great question. I think it's a question a lot of people have. In summary, I think... Um, the impact of this new legislation will come, is still to be determined. Um, the legislation itself, C-15, as you know, it's very short. The operative provisions, there's about seven of them. Um, and it calls for processes uh, which are to take place um, with um, Indigenous peoples. Um, for example, the creation of an action plan uh, and a framework as to how to implement UNDRIP. And, you know, there's been criticism that it doesn't have enough meat, 
There's been others who've criticized it because they say, you know, it does too much. It's too radical. Um, but I think when you uh, look at UNDRIP and you look at some of the UN material um, in relation to UNDRIP, there's, there's actually, um, it's a document provided by the UN for legislators uh, wanting to implement UNDRIP in, in their um, jurisdictions. And it actually clearly calls for its implementation be, to be done in collaboration and cooperation with Indigenous peoples. So, you know, when we look at UNDRIP and, you know, uh, the 40-some articles in there um, and what they mean precisely and their scope, I mean, that's a highly not unusual it's highly contested you know different people read those articles differently in terms of what they mean and the scope and um and um just like with treaty rights right like first nations tend to have a different view than the crown on what those rights mean in practice and so it's important that um, it's actually critical that UNDRIP be implemented in, in cooperation with Indigenous communities. So that, I think a lot of um, the um, effect of this bill, uh, well, not the effect of the bill, but the effect of or how UNDRIP will be seen on the ground in Canada is to be determined by that action plan and what comes out of it. More practically nuts and bolts, I think we can safely say that it will um, strongly encourage uh, resource developers or infrastructure developers, whether it be crown or private, to um, inc consult more deeply and accommodate more deeply. I, I also think that it will change the dynamic at tables when you're discussing, you know, between Indigenous rights holders and, and the crown and perhaps developers into one of building consent as opposed to, you know, consultation, which sometimes we see in certain jurisdictions, which um, perhaps are not as forward as others in consultation, it ends up, uh, the dynamic is one in which the rights holders are more protesting, right? And saying, listen to us and here are our rights. And even just trying to get recognition that those rights matter or may be impacted. I think the dynamic will change and I, I've been talking to my colleagues in BC and they have noticed this with their um, equivalent or similar bill to or law to Bill C-15. C um, it, it changes the dynamic to one of protest to the one of consensus building. My understanding of UNDRIP is that it was a declaration that was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly. What do declarations mean in international law? And what repercussions could Canada face if it fails to meet the terms of UNDRIP? I will preface this with a caveat. I am not an international law lawyer. But my understanding is um, there are different categories of international instruments. So you, you have a treaty, let's say, convention. And declaration is actually considered, my understanding, soft law. That's how it's described, soft law in the international context. And so whether or not or how it's binding is a difficult question and it's not immediately apparent like um uh without some parliamentary um indication you know that it positively applies and we have c15 which appears to do that in part but yet 
breaks away from the usual way that you would implement implement um, a, a, an international instrument. Just on the uh, note of UNDRIP in general, uh, when we look at the different provinces and the federal government, uh, could you just speak a little bit to uh, more as to what the differences in implementation might be and how in private practice uh, you would be approaching uh, differing interpretations and implementation plans for UNDRIP across the provinces in coordination with the federal government? I would say that the provinces will very strongly, well, at least our province, Alberta, <laughs> will very strongly argue that C-15 applies only to federal jurisdiction and does not bind them at all. Um, I would also predict that our courts on the prairies will take that approach. Um, um, and that has its roots in, you know, sort of jealously guarding um, the part of the Constitution, division of powers that gives uh, the provinces the right over natural resources. Uh, and, and I think most of the debate and even, even this session, right, um, on C-15 has been preoccupied with how this will affect natural resource development. Um, I actually think this bill does a ton more than that, <laughs> but that's definitely been a, <clears throat> um, a big preoccupation or, you know, taken up a lot of ink, uh, uh, the debate on this. And I think sometimes the detriment of other things that this, that this bill does, I, I think it's much more than just about the duty consult related to um, changes on the land, but... So I guess now, in general, how does UNDRIP relate to the duty to consult? So like I said, I, my own perspective is it changes um, the dynamic, uh, one of consultation to one of building consensus. And on the ground, what that means is different thought patterns for the Crown and both rights holders. So, <clears throat> for example... It can be a big shift for First Nations, for example, in the Prairie Provinces and the numbered treaties where um, the rights have been pretty narrowly interpreted um, to move from a protest mode to one of, okay, so if you, know, if you don't want this project, what are the solutions, right? To one of offering a framework, offering solutions and working with the Crown government to government. Um, that also takes a lot of resources, right? Um, most communities, all communities that I know of, don't have the resources or the in-house scientists and, and technical people like the Crown does, right? So I, I know, for example, in British Columbia, um, when I talk to my colleagues there who are working under that provincial legislation with respect to UNDRIP, um, you know, everyone's learning how to walk again, right? Even the Crown, um, they'll come into the room like it's a consultation and the First Nations say, well, no, we want to start from the beginning and work with you to build, for example, a land use plan. And that's actually been done in BC in, in one area where collaboratively the Crown worked with um, a nation <clears throat> to build a land use plan instead of coming with sort of a cooked plan or mostly cooked plan, and saying, okay, we're consulting you on this. Tell us now <laughs> what your views are. And we may or may not take them into account, but we'll write them all down and say we dutifully consulted with you. Um, it, was, <clears throat> there, it was more of a partnership, which I think when you think about what the courts have said anyway, Section 35, the goal is reconciliation. I mean, that's that um, consensus building moves toward reconciliation more. 
that definitely makes sense. So I guess UNDRIP then it has the potential to influence or even change this uh, duty to consult doctrine moving forward then? Um, yeah, I think that uh, industry and some of our provinces are very afraid of <laughs> expand, you know, they're scared of expanding this duty to consult. Um, but I think, um, or some, I would say some industry players, others see it as an opportunity, I would say, you know, if, if it wasn't clear before that you need to engage with communities very early on in your project planning, this certainly adds an additional pressure to do that. And as I said, to work with those most impacted to co-develop whatever it is you're planning to do. And in fact, the goal of UNDRIP, if, if you talk to elders like um, Chief uh, Willie Littlechild, for example, was to keep things out of the courts, was to work, you know, where, where governments would work with Indigenous peoples at a table together to work things out, as opposed to having to resort to the courts, which I'll tell you a lot of um, my Indigenous clients you know, they don't have a lot of confidence in the courts, right? Um, they don't, many don't see it as their system um, or a system that is fully informed of an understanding of their perspective. I, I want to add one thing as to how UNDRIP may change the duty to consult. And, and I, I, I hear that question, I feel like it's pretty narrow. I actually think <clears throat> this action plan process and when you look a lot at the, some of the preamble a lot of the preamble in UNDRIP and both in the bill itself can actually provide um, a basis for renewing some of the uh, the treaty relationship particularly in the historic treaties and the numbered treaties which Alberta is covered by uh, and the prairies are covered by um, for a long time I know First Nations here um, um well, since the beginning, you know, the joke is the Crown saw these numbered treaties as a divorce and First Nations saw them as a wedding ceremony, a marriage, right? Um, where there would be this ongoing relationship. And, um, and so I think the action plan actually provides a basis for treaty First Nations to say, listen, we want to do this in the context of the treaty, which is very sacred, um, you know, to most communities uh, or beneficiaries who signed the treaty, um, and and have that discussion. Um, I mean, duty consult is one piece of it, but it's much broader. Um, uh, it's about the whole relationship and a nation to nation relationship. So I, I can kind of see that happening. I mean, we, we're, two years is such a short time. I you know to actually develop these action plans in a meaningful way. It'll be really, I'm really excited to see what comes out of it. Um, I'm a little nervous because there's a federal election in between and we know things get kind of stalled, you know, especially on big policy questions like this. You know, it's not just sort of uh, your routine <laughs> workings of government. So uh, we'll see what comes out. But um, I'm confident that if both sides put in the effort that um, uh, some really exciting things could come out of it. Yeah. Definitely. That makes total sense. And it's a good segue into our next question about uh, Bill C-15. Uh, C-15 implements UNDRIP. Uh, it entered into force on July 21st of this year. And what does it say, if anything, on the issues that relate to the duty to consult doctrine itself? Yeah, so um, I think lots of you, uh, you may have heard about this with your other folks you interviewed with. Um, and we know we heard a lot from industry in the provinces. They're very concerned about it. I think it's Article 32 
which talks about uh, free prior informed consent before there's um, uh, activity on the traditional territories of Indigenous peoples. And there is a concern expressed by those groups that this gives a veto power to uh, rights holders. Um, uh, it's interesting <laughs> that that is just the only section focused on because there's a lot of balancing provisions in UNDRIP actually. So Article 32 has three subsections. Uh, one of them does speak about this free prior and informed consent, but uh, subsection three of that article actually says that, you know, states have to provide effective mechanisms for just and fair redress of any such activities on traditional territory. An appropriate measure shall be taken to mitigate adverse environmental, economic, social, or cultural, or spiritual impacts. So that might be something we call accommodation. And it might, you know, what it's called accommodation in the case law right now. But it gives uh, more meat to what we've seen so far in the case law about what accommodation means. Um, there are other provisions. I think it's Article 27 and 28 that talk about compensation, too, where, 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 um, consent can't be obtained, um, other redress might be available, such as compensation and, uh, and other things. So um, how that will all flesh out, I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you, as someone who works with um, Indigenous communities and rights holders, that at the very least, it is an impetus for Crown and for, well, for Crown who cares about these things, not all Crowns do, <laughs> for Crown and for industry players to sit down early and try to hammer out a plan that will work for both sides. Yeah, that, that again, it's a good overview that you've provided. Uh, one thing you mentioned was, uh, you know, there's a term called consent, there's veto. Uh, some of our previous speakers have addressed this, but just from your perspective, what's the difference between both and how does uh, private practice deal with uh, the differences and the inter potential interchangeability of the two terms? I tell you, I get hit over the head with veto anytime. <laughs> You're in court arguing, you know, why something needs to be stopped because of rights. And, and they say, well, you know, the courts have said you don't have a veto. I don't, I don't love that framing of it. Um, as I said, I think approaching it more as a trying to build consent and providing, you know, um, the framework to build that consent and having everyone on the same page that that's the goal is a lot more productive. Yeah, characterizing things as a veto is a very negative, I would say, conception of how this works. Consent uh, acknowledges that, you know, both parties are here to stay. And how do we how do we do what we can to try to accommodate both perspectives? That's, that's, again, that's a good perspective to hear. But when we go back to Bill C-15 uh, and this whole doctrine of the duty to consult, uh, how does the Bill C-15 uh, apply to provinces or affect uh, implementation in the provinces? As I said, I, I, I think Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba will strongly object uh, to any suggestion that C-15 applies in the provinces. Um, and again, that comes from their, um, especially in Alberta and uh, Saskatchewan, um, their jealous sort of guarding of what they see as uh, their unfettered right <laughs> to develop natural resources, you know, subject to 
these incursions by the, you know, probably by the, by they see as um, by the Supreme Court on the duty to consult. Um, there is some interesting um, writings on, well, not just writings, I deal with this day to day. Um, so, um, I mean, we have these, you know, the division of powers, federal, provincial. Um, we also have treaties where the courts have said both the province and the federal government have duties um, under these treaties. Um, and how that fits in with the division of powers, it's, it's a complex question. And you often see the federal government kind of stepping lightly on that issue and the provincial government very quick to call them if they see an incursion into the division of powers issue. I think that's will could be an important piece of, I don't know if it's the action plan or maybe the action plan will call for more discussion on it. But that's an important piece that needs to be figured out in terms of how do we do this? You know, we, we've conceived of this division of powers two orders of government, but we've kind of forgotten the other, what we now acknowledge is um, another constitutional, I wouldn't say level, but uh, a constitutional consideration, which is how Indigenous uh, peoples fit into that. That definitely makes sense. And it's uh, as a follow-up, uh, what are some uh, critiques or limitations you see uh, or you've heard of uh, about Bill C-15? <laughs> Um, a few critiques. Uh, I can say, um, well, we know, I think we're familiar with um, the province, some of the, like, you know, Alberta provincial government's critiques and industries, some of industries' critiques about it. Um, I'm going to maybe talk about critiques I've heard from Indigenous peoples. So um, one of them was, uh, so I, I'll say, first of all, there's a ton of distrust when the federal government has legislation which uh, purports to speak about, which legislates about them, right? Um, that hasn't turned out well. <laughs> that would be an understatement over the course of history in Canada. So uh, right away, there is a lot of distrust. And, and sometimes I even wonder, so I'll say that there were some treaty First Nations in Alberta who objected to C-15, um, and I sometimes wonder, you know, if this was Romeo Saganesh's bill where he was in opposition and he had a very similar bill, which died on the order paper before the last election, uh, 2019 election, um, if they might have more faith in it than, than when, it, when it's the government of Canada putting forward the bill. Um, I think some of the opposition that we heard from Indigenous um, peoples, I would say... I only heard it mainly from First Nations. Um, uh, I think most of what I heard from Métis and Inuit uh, organizations or rights holders were they were in favor. Uh, some of it came from how C-15 was developed. So we're in a minority parliament. Um, and uh, my understanding was it was a strong um, priority of this government and the AFN. Uh, Assembly of First Nations um, to get this, to implement UNDRIP, get it across the line, right? This was promised in 2015 election. We're now in 2021. Um, there was already too much delay. And as I said, uh, Romeo Saganish, um, uh, NDP member of parliament, brought this forward before the last federal election. And the bill died on the order paper 
uh, in part, largely, I would say, because um, the committees that studied it in the House and the Senate <clears throat> had um, a lot of witnesses. <laughs> Right. So you run out of the clock and that's a bit of a strategy sometimes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's good. Obviously, I think everyone agrees democracy. It's good for everyone to have their say. But there was a bit of a strategy. It was felt um, with Romeo Saganish's bills, particularly in the Senate hearings, to try to run out the clock before the Senate could pass it. My understanding is with C-15, the government and the AFN wanted to avoid that. And so they tried to be very strategic in developing the bill. I understand it, the bill was co-developed uh, between Department of Justice federally, um, the AFN, um, ITK, the Inuit organization, um, and uh, the Métis Nation of Canada, I think, was involved too, So, and with their legal counsel as well. So it was co-developed, and there was a feeling it was done in secrecy by First Nations. So First Nations said, well, you didn't consult us, and um, there's often a tension between the Assembly of First Nations and uh, for you know individual First Nations um, because the Assembly of First Nations is not rights holding; um, it's it's the First Nations themselves which make up the Assembly of First Nations that hold rights, and so they would say it's the right holders that need to be consulted, and of course the Crown. <laughs> because they you know, like to do things efficiently, will often, as a shortcut, go to, for example, the Assembly of First Nations and say, okay, we talked to you, we're good. Like, we, we don't need to talk to anybody else. So there was some tension there and a feeling it was done behind closed doors. Um, and the closed door aspect of it, I think probably the Minister of Justice would say that was in order to be able to stick handle it through Parliament and to avoid... Um, a situation where uh, it became a major campaign for provinces and and industry to kill, if not directly, indirectly by running out the clock. You know, minority parliament, it's hard to pass things, harder even than in the majority that they had before when they tried to pass it. So, um, so uh, yeah, I, I, there was some suspicion, I think, that came from that sort of um, House of Commons or parliamentary procedure and the tactics involved in trying to get this across the line. And um, some people might say that's sausage making, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it's ugly to see how laws are actually made. Or what's the saying? If you like sausage or public policy, you don't want to see how they're made. I, I think um, that would be apt here. But key is, is these, uh, the real meat the real work is going to be in the action plan, I think. And I am hopeful <laughs> that uh, Indigenous rights holders and the Crown will take this seriously and work hard to make sure that action plan is cooperatively done. I, you know, I, I do worry that without that, um, without that strong plan, to, to get this action plan done by the deadline. Um, or I, I do worry if you have um, even a different government um, that doesn't prioritize this, um, it could be seriously problematic for the prospects of actually implementing UNDRIP in Canada. So there, there were different reactions, right? It wasn't a monolith. I would say um, non-treaty BC First Nations were strongly in favor 
they have already started working with this, a similar act in BC. On the prairies, there was more suspicion. And that's a general statement. There were some who supported and some who didn't. Okay. So I guess with this uh, diversity of reactions, uh, how do you see uh, the Indigenous peoples of Canada being engaged in the next steps when implementing this? I would like to see, I don't know if this will happen. <laughs> I would like to see not the crown driving, uh, you know, sort of steering and saying, this is how we're going to engage. I'd like to see First Nations sending the Department of Justice or whatever the repository is for the department plans to how to engage. I'd like to see Indigenous rights holders in the driver's seat. Um, um, again, that does require resourcing, but I do understand the minister said in one of the committee meetings, I think it was, that um, they, they can't put money into bills like this, but there has been money set aside to help this uh, move forward. So I'd, I'd love to see Indigenous uh, rights holders actually taking the lead in how they want to see this. And I think that will vary from, from nation to nation, you know how the Inuit might want to approach this be very different than, for example, how First Nations in the, you know, numbered treaty areas might want to deal with this. And as a final follow-up to this section, uh, what are some other uh, key questions that Bill C-15 still needs to answer? and Where would courts need to look when answering those questions? Well, my question is how the courts are going to look at this. Um, that's my key question. So, so it's interesting that the question is, well, how will, what will courts look at? I mean, we've seen some courts already accept some of the principles of UNDRIP and, and interpreting the law. We've seen some courts say, no, you know, um, this has not been formally um, adopted into Canadian law. Like, uh, take uh, what I would say is a and I, I don't mean for this to be a judgment or, or, or about right or wrong, but a formalistic approach to how international law is incorporated into Canadian law. Um, I will say C-15 does not use the language that you see in other uh, um, international instruments to incorporate it into Canadian law. So um, uh, I think Nigel Banks from the University of Calgary actually wrote a really good blog on that, on that point. Um, uh, I also am understanding of why it couldn't do that because you have to implement this in cooperation with Indigenous peoples. So it's a little different than a sort, of, sort of like the Korean trade agreement, right? <laughs> where, where the government of Canada can take that agreement and just unilaterally implement it, right? It's a bit different. Um, there is a provision in uh, C-15 that says nothing in here shall delay the implementation of UNDRIP, right? Um, I am interested to see how courts interpret that. Um, and I mean, I can see arguments on that uh, different people will make, but I think it's a bit of a roll of the dice as to how that will develop. Um, we even saw, I think recently, actually, fairly recently, there was a, um, a Supreme Court of Canada case on the implementation of uh, public uh, international rights uh, or public international law into Canada. And I mean, the Supreme Court itself was very divided. It wasn't on UNDRIP, it was on, I think it was on, uh, you know, human rights 
issues um, generally. Um, but they, there was like, <laughs> the court was very divided into how, how it viewed the issue with Abella, Justice Abella, who's now gone, leading the charge um, for one set of reasons. And, and uh, I think there were three sets of reasons. Um, uh, so it, it, that's to be worked out, I would say. I feel like everything I'm saying to you is we don't know yet, but here are the questions. But uh, and uh, I apologize for not uh, having a crystal ball and knowing all this. I'd love to, but um, that's where we rely on the folks like Professor Burroughs and Professor Adams um, to uh, work with these ideas and play with these ideas um, for practitioners like me, right? You know. Um, uh, so we can try to implement them in a practical way on the ground. Our final question relates to uh, where do you see the duty to consult doctrine in the next 50 years or so in light of C-15 and UNDRIP, uh, particularly in your private practice? I hope that in the next 50 years, we move to consensus, to building consensus um, on matters, uh, on projects. Um, I, I don't know that I'd say the next 50 years, I'll say the next 10 years. Um, I would, I'm very interested in seeing more judicial commentary and the law developing around accommodations. You know, there's been a lot of law around the duty to consult itself, um, but accommodations are where rubber hits the road, arguably. And um, actually seeing, I would say industry, uh, I don't know, there's, there's an argument about whether industry actions can even be described as accommodation or if accommodation needs to come from the crown. But um, I would say in terms of practical ways to, to um, ameliorate impacts, industry has been at the forefront, um, the crown less so, um, uh, often constrained by the regulatory process that they're in, so the environmental assessment process that they're in, they're bound by their legislation, they can all do certain things. Um, so I, I, I'm interested to see that develop, the accommodation side of the duty to consult. Thank you for joining us in the final episode of our podcast series on the duty to consult doctrine. I hope you enjoyed the conversations with our incredible guests. And once again, I would like to extend our very special thank you to our guests, Professor Eric Adams, Professor John Burrows, Miss Sarah Mainville, and Miss Megan Conroy. We would also like to thank the Centre for Constitutional Studies, your hub for constitutional research and public legal education in Canada. You can check out their website for more great content at www.constitutionalstudies.ca. You can get their latest updates on Twitter. Just search for the Centre for Constitutional Studies. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. I hope you stay curious and stay engaged. I'm Liz England with Tesha DeBlanco and Zachary G. saying thank you and farewell. <laughs>